Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. YJBM is a PubMed-indexed quarterly journal edited by Yale medical, graduate, and professional students and peer-reviewed by experts in the fields of biology and medicine. I'm your host, Wesley Lewis, a second-year graduate student in computational biology and bioinformatics. And I'll cut right to the chase. These are times of mass protesting, major legal action, and international calls for reform. Although we typically cover topics that address the biomedical sciences, epidemiology, and healthcare practice, it's no secret that the systemic biases, residential segregation, violent responses to protesting, and further injustices that we see today all drive healthcare inequality and inform the topics and methods of research and practice for our audience. In light of the recent murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Elijah McClain, among others, we've decided to use our platform as an avenue of communication for esteemed researchers such as Dr. Monica Bell, who we'll be talking to today. Dr. Bell is an associate professor of law and sociology at Yale, with a long withstanding expertise in topics of criminal justice, housing inequality, and welfare law. She attended Furman University for her undergraduate degree in political science and sociology, before attending University College Dublin for her master's in equality studies. Harvard University for her AM and PhD in Sociology and Social Policy, and Yale University for her JD. Her research and written work covers such topics as police reform, race and class segregation, and criminal justice. As a group of editors and collaborators, we at the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine are immensely glad to have Dr. Bell on our podcast today. Hi, Monica. How are you? I'm doing just fine. How are you? Doing good today. So, although I'm excited to talk about current events, I want to first take a step back to learn the details of your path as an academic and researcher. How have your studies and research interests evolved to date, leading you to zero in on various issues in law and policy? Well, that's a, that's a bit of a long story, um, but I think, um, you know, I've, I've been interested my whole life in issues of racial justice and um, class inequality. And uh, so the question wasn't really what I would focus on, but like what specific areas and how. So I went to law school hoping to kind of do what I thought would be more traditional civil rights work. Um, I found that to not be quite the path for me. And I learned that I was more interested in taking a sociological approach, uh, really focusing on the people who experience uh, kind of in a visceral way, race and class inequality and uh, using and kind of drawing from, uh, from that experience to uh, engage in conversations about law and policy because so much of law and policy tends to be shaped without a real uh, involvement and in the systematic involvement of people who are most directly affected by, by these policies. And so um, that's, that's how I uh, kind of became interested generally in issues of race, class, inequality, and then specifically on policing, which is what I've, where I've focused for most of the past eight years. Uh, that interest came out of working at the Legal Aid Society of DC. Um, I, there I was um, working primarily with low-income Black mothers, you know, people who are similar to, to my mom, and uh, but except in DC and not in South Carolina where I'm from. And um, uh, basically from them, I was hearing about really complicated stories. So, you know, you'd want to say, okay, I want to focus on your family law situation right now, or I want to focus on 
welfare benefits or something like that, but everything was interconnected and the common vector between a lot of the different uh, housing issues they had, child welfare system issues, et cetera, the common um, actor, the uh, common denominator was the, the police. And so I've spent most of the past decade uh, focusing on kind of police community concerns. Okay, that's very interesting. Um, so in the same vein, then, what topics have been on your mind in recent months, especially as police reform is being called for in a historic but nonetheless polarizing capacity? Yeah, I mean, so uh, I think there have been a, a several different issues on my mind. Uh, one is, you know, as I mentioned before, I've been studying policing and a lot of the topics that we uh, or that or I guess a lot of people are focusing on now for a long time. And uh, one of the things that I've, that's been on my mind has been actually, I've been surprised by the amount of surprise um, people have displayed in relation, not just to the police violence, but also to broader issues of racism. I mean, I've had uh, so many white people reach out to me uh, who I haven't talked to in, in a long time to you know, ask for advice on who they should be donating to and ask for more information about racism, asking for reading resources and all of this sort of thing. Um, and that's been, like I understand why they're doing it, but, but it's really surprising that, um, that that's happening. And I, I find it, um, yeah, I just find it sort of alarming. So that that has been one thing that's on my mind is just kind of how the the issues that many of the people who, with whom I've done research and myself, issues that we've been experiencing our entire lives are really brand new to a lot of people. That's one thing I've been thinking about. Um, uh, also kind of on an intellectual level, one thing I've been thinking through, and I think it's gonna shape a lot of my research going forward, is um, this kind of, the, the aesthetics of black misery and how they have shaped so much of the conversation. So this, so, you know, I was mentioning people reaching out, it's like, oh, you know, I'm so sorry, you have to deal with so much as a black person. And that's all true. Uh, when we, of course, think about uh, the, the video that, um, really set the nation alight um, and really the world. I mean, there are people, you know, across the globe concerned um, about the brutal death of George Floyd at the hands of Derek Chauvin uh, and the brutality of that death uh, is, is undeniable. And for many people who haven't been paying attention for a long time, for them, they think they now have an understanding of the Black experience through the lens of George Floyd's death. And one thing that stands out to me, and I, I think about this actually in the context of the Chris Cooper and Amy Cooper incident in Central Park, um, which, you know, I, <laughs> like these, these things for many Black people are very routine. That, that type of interaction is not uncommon. It's something I've experienced myself. And, uh, you know, you're, uh, you know, it's like Chris Cooper was trying to do his bird watching, you know, like he was really into that. And there's all, there are all these aspects of life that bring black people joy that become, that are some, that are certainly tainted by racism. 
but are not completely defined by it. And so I'm really interested in how um, how law and policy could be marshaled in ways that aren't about keeping Black people from experiencing racism. I mean, that, that's a good goal, but also that are more about um, protecting Black joy and enabling Black joy and flourishing. And that is, uh, that might sound too nuanced, but that's the thing I've been thinking about a lot as the conversation has been unfolding, um, this kind of reckoning we're finally having uh, with racism in this country. Let's see. And with that reckoning, obviously protesting has been such an important hot topic recently. Um, do you have any thoughts about just the recent divisiveness of protesting and what probably goes back a very long time, this idea that people are going are uh, invalidating protests because of the acts of sole individuals rather than recognizing the hundreds of thousands of people that clearly are standing up to, uh, to voice their qualms with the way that policing currently exists in the United States and with um, the state of uh, racial inequality. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's interesting because um, one of the features about this particular moment of protest that's been quite fascinating is that the focus that often arises on property damage or what some people would call looting in the context of protest. Um, in this moment of protest, it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's basically not necessarily black pro the Black protesters and Black Lives Matter protesters who visually even have been uh, doing that. <laughs> and so there's this interesting way in which ultimately, because, in part because of the racial diversity of uh, the people engaged in protest and in um, uh, the property damage, uh, uh, President Trump essentially had to say, oh, it's, the, it's Antifa. And so you know, when you start talking, conversations about Antifa, it, it sort of, it kind of has re-legitimated, even in that kind of respectability politics sort of way, it's legitimated um, the Black Lives Matter aspect of the protest. And I think one thing that's, that's, that's exciting is that even though I think early in the conversation, there was a lot of focus on this property damage. And of course, I mean, the easy response is, why do you care more about property damage than you care about Black life? Why do you care more about property damage than you care about the health and safety of these protesters who are being maced and sprayed and, and beaten? Um, so it's like, why is that, that your priority? But I think maybe more interestingly is that um, the people saw that video, right? And I think there are always people who are going to say, oh, well, why don't they protest in a more respectable way? There will always be people who try to use um, property damage as an excuse to invalidate claims to racial justice. But I think they've actually been, uh, they haven't had control over the larger conversation. I think there's been a real, um, a real recognition that uh, whatever the protesters' um, devices are, the concerns are real. And so I, um, I'm not too worried about that, to be honest, um, as, as a major factor in our conversation.
That's good. Um, and then, likewise, do you have any thoughts about just the response to protests? The, the fact that in protesting the police, that so many further incidents have been revealed of police brutality towards protesters and um, those dynamics as of recent weeks. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so uh, the, the police, so there are multiple, there are multiple things in your question. So, so one of them is that the um, police have been responding in this kind of heavy handed, uh, often violent way to protesters um, and even to white protesters. I was, I have, you know, some people, are like, oh, you know, I'm so surprised that they was respond to white protesters this way. And uh, I think there are a few different things we're seeing there. One is, uh, and I think conversations about police budgets and militarization have revealed this, uh, police have access to a lot of shield equipment, tactical equipment, weaponry, et cetera, they don't routinely need to use. Um, and so that means they sometimes use these for, um, for situations that, that for they're really unnecessary, you know, query whether they're ever necessary, but like, let's say, you know, even if you <laughs> think they are sometimes, um, they've, been, they've been using them a lot, which is, so, so, so there's an argument there, which is to say, uh, uh, if there were fewer of these types of resources, they would be deployed um, less frequently and um, less seriously. But there's a much larger sort of cultural, kind of police culture story um, I think is important to raise here, which is that um, really for the past several decades, I would say, I would, I mean, I'm gonna, this is a really rough starting point, but I would say maybe starting in the 1920s, so almost 100 years ago, um, uh, there's been this long uh, mission toward police professionalization, which is the in this embrace of an idea that the police are the predominant um, institution tasked with uh, creating public safety, and in the service of doing that, there there was this kind of modernization effort. There's training. There's consistent uniforms, uh, cars. Um, so I'm thinking now about the work of Sarah Sayo, who's this really fascinating historian at the University of Iowa School of Law. Uh, like there is a way in which um, all of these gadgets and tactics and, um, and then coupled with court decisions. So there've been a number of uh, court decisions, um, most prominently Terry versus Ohio in the 1960s, which, um, basically legitimate deference to police officers' uh, judgments about matters of safety and matters of security and suspicion. And over the past, um, I guess I would say five to six years um, in, the, in the heart of the Black Lives Matter movement, especially after the deaths of Michael Brown and Tamir Rice in kind of 2014-2015 time frame and Eric Garner, of course, like those um, deaths in particular, and pull, uh, you know, kind of built um, movement energy. And I think over that time, there's been a shifting in the conversation. So even after all that pro professionalization, there's been a shift of the conversation to say, to start questioning, you know, how, like should the police be equated with public safety. Is that narrative um, something that is 
verifiable based on what we see going on around us. And I think um, it's been really frustrating to the police, <laughs> right? Like it's, it's like your whole professional identity is built on the idea that you are a provider of public safety. And when the world writ large is saying, are you? I'm not sure. For the first time in decades, that is maddening. And I think that helps drive some of the response we see to the protests because the, the entire kind of professional legitimacy of policing is being questioned, uh, I would say, for the first time in decades. Okay. So with so many different approaches then being proposed by state and local governments, uh, as well as bills before Congress, what do you wish people knew about the legislation and reform strategies they and their representatives are voting on now? Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot. I mean, the answer I'm going to give is is probably more of an ethos than it is anything about a particular policy. I think it's important for people to examine the likelihood, um, or I guess let's say examine the novelty of the proposal and examine whether that proposal is likely to make the police more central in uh, the daily lives of marginalized communities or less central. And let me say a little bit about why that's important. So um, I wish people knew that for the past uh, three decades at least, um, uh, especially with the development of the National Cops Program uh, uh, as an outgrowth of the Clinton crime bill in 1994, um, there's been this massive influx of police officers to um, marginalized communities, especially in urban areas. And at the same time, there's been an expansion of the substantive criminal law. So what I mean by that is they're just more criminal laws. There are more things that are criminalized. And what that means is that you have this situation where there are more police and also more reasons that the police can engage people um, and, and many of those criminal laws are things that um, you or me might not think are like that big of a deal. Um, the classic example that people give here is the Eric Garner and the selling loose cigarettes business. It's like, well, did we actually need police on that one? Um, and uh, in, in George Floyd's case, right? Um, uh, $20 counterfeit bill that which he may or may not have known was counterfeit but um, the store by law was required to call the police to report the counterfeit bill, regardless of whether they wanted to, they, they were supposed to do that. Um, and, and then this horrible situation uh, transpires. So I think, so the, the overarching lesson one would learn from a lot of these incidents is there are places where the police are not needed that we that we use them for every day. These the police are not equivalent, and not all they do is meaningful crime control. And so, uh, whatever is being proposed has to come from a place of limiting that sort of engagement. And many, and so there are lots of different proposals on the table. And if we start looking locally, I have seen a wide range of proposals, things from 
in some suburbs, it never kind of got on the body camera business. You know, there's some people saying, oh, well, we just need more body cameras. Um, that, I think, is a type of proposal that is not meaningful reform. It's not. Um, we've also seen many conversations, of course, about defunding the police and what that actually tends to mean is removing some of the funding from the police budget and theoretically at least placing it other places where it would be valuable. Now this uh, tends to run into a lot of problems um, because uh, you know it's like there'll be activist energy built up around it and there'll be politicians saying saying they want to do it even at a local level but then they're the kind of the um, horse trade or whatever they call it happens. And then I think we've seen this actually in Minneapolis, which was, um, you know, kind of where the George Floyd deaths, uh, George Floyd's death took place and also um, was the first place to say, okay, we're going to take this, this police out of the schools, we're going to get rid of that contract and we're going to do fun. Um, actually, what they've wound up doing is not a whole lot. I mean, they're... Um, I think they reduced funding slightly, but it's really difficult to tell um, whether there's going to be a meaningful long-term policy change, even in Minneapolis. And so this is one thing I wish people would pay a lot more attention to, which is um, the difference between the slogan and whatever is implemented. And then finally, I just want to say something about um, some of the federal proposals. Um, so there are lots of federal proposals. Um, there are proposals to create a national database so that really horrible cops don't, aren't as easily able to move to other places. And I guess I wouldn't say that I'm opposed to that. I mean, I think, <laughs> you know, I think it's, um, it's truly tragic uh, how easy it is for police officers to relocate. Um, I'm thinking now, so there's an article that was recently out in the Yale Law Journal by Ben Grunewald and John Rappaport called The Wandering Officer that actually empirically tracks some of this movement of officers um, in, in different localities. And, um, you know, um, I think it's important to, to make that less uh, possible. That will not resolve these issues. The, the, the ethos behind that um, reform is to say uh, there are bad police officers out there and we want to keep track of them so they are no longer police officers. I'm all for that, but that doesn't take into account the fact that there is something deeply toxic about police culture and how police culture uh, teaches officers to interact with black communities in particular, also some brown communities and basically all poor communities. And so uh, essentially, it's, I know I'm, I'm going on for a while, but, <laughs> but the, I, I guess there are a couple of questions that I would encourage people to, to think about when they hear about proposals and whether they want to support them. One is whether they're treating the problems of policing as uh, problems of individual bad police officers or problems of police culture, police policy, etc. Uh, the other and another thing is, as I mentioned earlier, whether this proposal is likely to in involve more police in people's lives or whether that proposal is likely to reduce police and maybe up the capacity of social service agencies, community organizations, et cetera. Um, I guess those are two questions, but, but there's, a, there's a lot more to say about that theoretically.
Okay. So my next question was going to be, um, what actions do you think are the most effective then in the domain of police reform and what avenues of change do you wish were given more attention by lawmakers um, or just um, interested, caring civilians? But also, I'm interested, um, I, I guess, more specifically in actions related to police impunity as of late. Um, one good example being the Breonna Taylor case, that because actions were carried out under a warrant that was signed and supposedly well-researched, um, that the officers that carried out that warrant, even if they did so in a way that um, is harshly criticized for what I believe is good reason, um, that those officers therefore have almost complete impunity just by the sheer existence of that warrant in the first place. Right, right. Um, Yeah, so there is a real divide between what is legal and what is just. I think that's, that's the, um, the, that's one really overarching piece of, um, this entire situation because right so people who are not lawyers um who who are not jaded uh see what happened to brianna taylor they see um what has happened so many times when the officers claim that they uh felt threatened and they um uh, avoid punishment in that way um uh and um so that that's like that's a general issue um but then we also have certain doctrines that keep uh, police officers from being held individually accountable for wrongdoing. Uh, the one people have been talking about most uh, recently is a qualified immunity. Uh, the Supreme Court declined to revisit qualified immunity. It's essentially what qualified immunity, what that doctrine is. So if you wanna sue uh, the police, so sue, sue a police officer for, um, violating uh, your constitutional rights. Um, there, in generally speaking, uh, the police officer is immunity is immune from uh, from uh, that lawsuit uh, in part because um, uh, they have to be violating a clearly established law. And um, th- it is very difficult to, to prove that um, much of what police do violates quote unquote clearly established law. Um, so uh, that's that's just one piece of it. I'm not an expert on qualified immunity in general, but um, but but that's one other thing that people have been discussing in the uh, more recently. Uh, here's the issue. Um, and, and, well, and then of course I should mention that uh, many times prosecutors don't actually want to charge police officers with wrongdoing. So if you're thinking about criminal accountability and not civil accountability, um, uh, there are lots of reasons prosecutors wouldn't charge police officers would be less likely to do that. Um, if we think about um, what happened in the Michael Brown case in 2014, uh, it's just one example. Uh, the grand jury didn't um, issue, uh, or didn't, um, come up with the uh the charges so it didn't go through um it didn't go through the grand jury and that's really interesting um to not have to have a grand jury that doesn't indict because it's really rare to have a grand jury not be able to indict someone like (laughs) it's like um really really rare um and so um 
so moving on from that. So I think the, there are many issues that keep uh, individual police officers from being held accountable for their wrongdoing. Uh, police unions are also a factor in this, right? So like police union representatives uh, uh, sometimes um, stand up and advocate for officers to keep them from getting fired, to keep them from facing substantive reprimand for um, or substantive kind of accountability and consequences for their wrongdoing. So there are many, many ways in which the law is insufficient and in which institutions are insufficient in creating individual accountability for police officers. That's important. Here's the other issue, and this gets to what I was saying earlier, which is that individual accountability assume like if you're really concerned about individual accountability there can be two theories as to why one is that you think the problems of policing are the problems of bad police officers so they're quote bad apples that just need to be rooted out they need to be sued they need to be incarcerated they need a kind of accountability that could, so that's one reason you might worry about that Another reason that you might uh, worry about that is if you think that justice comes through individual retribution. Um, and I'm not really here to pass judgment on, you know, if you're a, kind of a retribution person. Um, so basically like holding that person accountable means that justice has been done. Um, that, that would be kind of a retributive, a retributive justice um, ex, uh, position. And then, Another reason is what you would call in criminal law deterrence theory. So this idea that uh, if you hold these people accountable for their wrongdoing, uh, other officers will see it and learn and it will transform how policing operates in that way. But we know um, we have little reason to believe that, um, to, to like really believe in that kind of general deterrence theory. Um, uh, it's not clear that that happens. Of course, it's hard to prove it or disprove it. Um, but what I'm really interested in is collective accountability. I'm really interested in the fact that on a day-to-day -day basis, even if no one dies, there's a lot of what um, I would call police violence, uh, questioning people as to whether they're allowed to be in certain places or not, um, mistreating people um, uh, in all kinds of different ways, uh, you know, cursing people out, um, you know, there, there are a number of like, of, of things that seem small if the, if, if the concern you're focused on is a police killing, but are actually, you know, in my research, what people talk the most about in terms of feeling violated by the police are not, you know, retelling George Ford's story. They're not retelling the story of Breonna Taylor. They, the, those are examples, of course, and they mean a lot, but the day-to-day -day experience is really, really important as well. And I want to see more accountability for policing in that area. Okay. Thank you. The, those ideas of collective accountability are very, uh, very powerful. I appreciate you sharing. Um, so another aspect of your research, which as you said, is um, all intertwines and kind of comes together in this area of policing, but maybe can be looked at in a more isolated way as well, um, race and class segregation. Uh, it feels very relevant in academic research, and oftentimes when designing a clinical trial or recruiting subjects for a study, 
these forms of segregation can lead to exclusion of people of color and other marginalized groups, or conversely, cause poor and primarily minority communities surrounding universities to be taken advantage of. Um, in what ways might PIs, clinical trialists, or university administrators seek to minimize harm caused to these communities? Yeah, so this is a great, great question, um, really important. Something I think about a lot as someone who uh, doesn't do clinical trials, you know, I don't do um, that type of research, but I do um, research in communities and um, there are all kinds of ways that the research process um, bears heavily on um, marginalized uh, neighborhoods um, and marginalized people. Um, and so, but at the same time, uh, there needs to be inclusion of marginalized people in research. I mean, especially if we're thinking about biological and medical research, uh, there's this strange way in which uh, you know, some research has left out um, black people, brown people, um, in ways that mean that the medical information is actually skewed. So, so, I got, so it's really important to include, but it's uh, important not to take advantage. Uh, so there are many different ways I think um, researchers can be more cognizant of this um, and empower communities more in, uh, in engaging in research. And I think the predominant, well, one place I would start, I think <laughs> an easy place to start is to think about how the community can participate in and help guide uh, the research. Um, so uh, in the past, I've done some participatory action research and how participatory research plays out is really different in different um, cases. Um, and I think uh, social science is easier to think of how, how it would work, but there's no reason that researchers can't engage in community meetings, get to be actually involved in the communities where they're doing research. So not just for research purposes, not just to pop in, pop out, I got my data and I'm leaving, but a longer standing engagement. I think that's critical and that should be key before the research even starts. And it should also continue after the research is over. So that, um, so there's some real investment and buy-in. There's also, um, you know, there are ways that um, we have this idea that people who live in marginalized communities don't have expertise in anything. And I think um, that is a, that's part of the reason why there's a lot we don't know. It's because uh, the, our, the, our knowledge production is tainted with ideas of kind of traditional elitism and people who do biological and medical research should have conversations with people in communities about um, what they're experiencing um, and, and get their ideas about what it would be important to understand, what some other alternative variables might be, um, uh, et cetera, um, and recruiting in ways that are responsible. Um, so uh, there is a, a really interesting report um, called, it's called Why Am I Always Being Researched? Um, and uh, the, it's a, a foundation in Chicago. I want to call, I want to think it's like the Chicago Foundation or something like that, but a, a, a foundation in Chicago actually uh, developed this, um, this really lengthy guide for 
organizations and kind of, for kind of like funders um, uh, to think about more systematically how they could be doing research with communities that is more attentive to their concerns. And, um, and so I think, I think that aspect of things is, is really important. And then finally, um, and this relates to my earlier point about the research being done in ways that are really engaged with the community over a long term is um, like there, you know, we're in New Haven and uh, the communities that surround Yale University are often seriously under-resourced. And, um, and I actually found this in DC where there, there were some people who were doing my research who who participated in my research, uh, in my study, who are basically like, oh, you know, well, like this, these $25 are really gonna help me. Um, and, you know, and sometimes biological medical research pays more. We have to think about in that sort of incentive structure and interrogate that. Um, there's a way in which research relies sometimes on people not having alternative means of survival, and that is not acceptable. And uh, people who engage in research should also be advocating for greater economic opportunity in the communities where they are, uh, are working. And so that's, that I think is another part of uh, doing research responsibly and ethically. Okay, I absolutely agree with that. I think uh, I went to the University of Rochester as an undergrad, so very similar environment in some ways to that around Yale, um, and the university was the largest employer in the region. So not only were people you know, participating in research because that $25 or that $50 when I was working on fMRI research would benefit them in a major way, which it would in many cases, but also, oftentimes, these would be people that would be working uh, for the university already, where the incentive structure is kind of built in. They're being recruited, they're working with the university, and yet we don't see, you know, these people being able to choose not to participate in these uh, research studies, these people ending up being in better resourced communities for the university's involvement. Mm, mm, yes. Mm. Um, so, um, with everything going on right now being, um, the protests that we're seeing, the calls for police reform, um, we are still amid a pandemic, which, um, has come up in most of our interviews recently for the podcast. Um, so how has the COVID-19 pandemic affected the current dialogue within your areas of research or caused you to maybe think differently about, uh, some of these subjects. Um. Yeah, yeah. So um, in so many ways, uh, I mean, large and small. So um, one really small way, um, I guess it's, a bi it's big for me, but it's, it's small as an entree into this conversation is, you know, someone who does qualitative field research. Um, I'm not going to be doing qualitative field research for a while. And um, and what that means is, I mean, that to some degree changes who and how I can interview and who and how I can observe. I've been doing some uh, observational research uh, of some um, basically like police community um, organizations uh, in Seattle uh, recently. And I've 
and what what does that meant? That is meant observing Zoom meetings. <laughs> it's like okay, you know, this is really different. But um, but there's so many bigger ways than that, right? So um, you know, I start the conversation by explaining that I I study policing, but I don't really see myself primarily as a policing scholar. I'm someone who comes from this uh, uh, out of concern about race, class, and equality. And uh, one of the things I think we noticed early in the COVID-19 uh, pandemic uh, as it's been play playing out in the US is the serious racial disparity in COVID-19 uh, uh, in terms of uh, diagnosis, but also death especially. And that's something that has affected me personally. My father, who I, um, my father passed away from COVID early uh, in the pandemic. Um, and, uh, and I, so many black people I know, know people who have died from COVID-19. And, uh, I have long, of course, thought about race, class, and equality, but I have focused much less on the health aspects of it, which is why this is an interesting, um, podcast for me to be a part of. I focus left, less on the health Part, in part because I don't know what to think about them. You know, like, <laughs> it's like, I think it's, um, it's, it's much more complicated than, um, than is, is easy for me to contemplate. But so, I, like, I'm thinking a lot about health and flourishing, which is kind of what, where the places, one of the places I, I was taking the conversation. Is I want to, like, in, in terms of that conversation about research and um, where it's all going, the bigger interest is to imagine Black people not just as legally equal, um, but as flourishing, and that flourishing includes health. And um, and so COVID-19 has certainly changed our way of thinking about this. Now, in terms of uh, policing and more broadly criminal uh, criminal legal research focused on prisons and things like this, so uh, in the police conversation, COVID-19 first, I think, played a massive role in uh, the fact that George Floyd's death got so much attention. I think that if we had not been in so much self-isolation uh, at the time that George Floyd died and was killed, um, I don't think we would be having this conversation in this way. Um, two, uh, I've also, like the, the protests that emerged and that have, have been ongoing are really fascinating because we're not supposed to be that close to each other, you know? Like, and so one of the things that stood out to me is, you know, it's like rough being black right now uh, because, um, you know, we're seeing this reckoning with racism for the first time. And I feel like I should be out on the streets joining these protests, but I also think that I am hyper vulnerable to, to death from COVID-19. And there's a way in which, um, and I actually also think that that has colored, uh, to, that is that has uh, affected who has been out protesting as well. I think one of the reasons we've seen more white people join the protests is in part because it's like, if if you're like serious about racial justice, you don't want it to just be black people protesting and putting their lives on the line um, at this time. Like it's it's really, and I guess the early early data is suggesting that that the protests are not affecting um COVID-19 uh in the same way but and that it might 
be in, in fact all this opening. So anyway, I don't know. So that's that's encouraging. Um, uh, th and then there are also there also have been changes in how police are functioning. So this is like really granular, but you know, uh, police don't want to put people in their cars in the age of COVID nineteen. Police don't want to handle a lot of people when it when it feels risky um, to them. And of course they have to, they're essential workers, um, but there's a way in which they're trying to limit their contact. And I think that has provided some interesting openings and interesting conversations around how much policing we actually need and whether police could be less hands-on in general. And then the final thing I wanna mention is actually kind of where a lot of my um, kind of colleagues and compatriots in the uh, scholarly world were focusing early in the pandemic, which is freeing people from prison. Uh, you know, uh, COVID-19 really uh, provided and has provided an opening to have conversations about how much people, quote unquote, need <laughs> to be incarcerated. And, um, and of course, prisons uh, are hotbeds for COVID. And, uh, and I think there are ways in which the arguments that have been constructed now, the legal arguments have been constructed now for freeing people from prison on the basis of the pandemic could provide openings to broader conversations about the necessity of incarceration. And so I think, um, you know, in terms of the topics I study, I, I think there's a discouragement um, with respect to a lot of the kind of racial equity um, ways of thinking about health. Um, but there's a lot been a lot of excitement and encouragement on the policing front and on the prison front. Okay, um, so there's a lot to unpack there. Um, and thank you again for sharing so much about your work as related to current events. Um, so lastly, are there other materials that you'd suggest for our listeners who want to know more? And I'll make sure that I link those that you've already mentioned as well. Sure, yeah, so yes, I mentioned the Wandering Officer article. I mean, there's so many things. Um, so uh, I pub just published an article in the NYU Law Review called Anti-Segregation Policing that examines how policing reproduces segregation. But the, the key conceit in that article that might be of, of help in this conversation is the, the routine aspects of police violence. So I am not as focused on police killings. I'm focused on the everyday routine police brutality. Um, and uh, so I also have another article um, that was published in 2017 in the Yale Law Journal called Police Reform and the Dismantling of Legal Estrangement. And that article uh, has a similar focus. And on both of these articles, um, they pull from uh, research uh, in Dallas, Texas, and Cleveland, Ohio, uh, and in Baltimore, Maryland, where I've uh, spent some time. Uh, so there's also some other fascinating work. Like, so um, as I mentioned right now, a lot of scholarship is focusing on well, a lot of people in reform communities are focusing on um, abolition. They're, they're having conversations about, um, uh, about how mo social movement actors can be fighting a lot of the essential tyranny of police. And so there's some work I wanna suggest um, that's helpful there. So 
Amna Akbar has an article in the NYU Law Review 2018 called Toward a Radical Imagination of Law that essentially dissects uh, the vision for Black Lives documents and, um, and discusses their relationship to law. And I think it help illuminate some of that conversation we were having earlier about the distinction between lawfulness and justice and policing and how, and can you think about how movements are focusing on that? And also understanding that police reform is not um, in a vacuum and that we have to reform a lot more than policing in order to build justice. Um, similarly, like along, along those lines, Dorothy Roberts um, has a, a fascinating, very long article in the Harvard Law Review um, uh, called uh, The Abolition Constitution, or I think it's called Abolition Constitutionalism. Um, that just came out in 2019, and um, it's uh, essentially uh, kind of frames out calls for abolition in a much more complex way than they tend to be uh, discussed in kind of, you know, common, uh, discourse and I think I think that work is helpful. Um, similarly along those lines, um, things by critical resistance, uh, the work of Rachel Herzing, who um, I think was one of the founders of critical resistance. Um, uh, so Rachel Herzing's articles um, uh, kind of are shorter pieces that I think also help frame out uh, that conversation. And finally, I want to mention the scholarship of Jocelyn Simonson, who is another law professor who has written, who has a piece that is forthcoming in the Yale Law Journal called um, Police Reform Through a Power Lens. And, as, and what the, the, kind of the type of argument that makes relates to what I said people should be looking for in reform, which is, um, and I, I don't think I talked about this enough, but this is kind of what I, I wanted to say, which is um, people should be looking for interventions that would shift power from police and technocrats to figure everything out and, and yield to the knowledge and expertise um, of communities that have been heavily policed. And Jocelyn Simonson's work helps orient us around that. I want to mention a couple of other pieces uh, by Jocelyn. Um, one is a great piece on uh, community bail funds. You know, we have one of those really active community bail fund here in Connecticut, um, Connecticut Bail Fund. Um, and uh, uh, so Jocelyn's work on bail funds, which is called Bail Nullification, it's in the Michigan Law Review. And that article discusses bail funds, what they do, and how it fits into broader visions of, of reform. So people who hear about bail funds, are like, oh, you give your money and they bail people out of jail, great, um, whatever. Um, but actually what bail funds are doing is, is trying to transform the system, but they're doing this one incremental type of thing, but they're also doing so much more with the goal to kind of destabilize uh, the entire um, kind of rigmarole and daily injustice of the criminal legal system. So uh, I want to elevate that. And then the final piece I want to mention by Jocelyn is a little older, um, and it's called cop watching, but I think I think what's cool about the cop watching article, which is in California Law Review, I want to say 2016, um, but I could be wrong about that year. Um, so the cop watching article is great because it illuminates, um, it, like it's about communities organizing to record the police, kind of like on their phones and things like this. It's a it, so instead of putting the video recording in the hands of body, like police body cameras and having that be the tale that's told, um, we've seen how um, uh, 
there a lot is left out um, uh, from police body cam footage. Police uh, police turn off their body cameras. Um, you know they they turn off the sound even if they keep the video going. And there's a lot of information that can be missing in that way. So so and the the broader impulse of that cop watching article is to examine reforms that can be quote unquote agonism so that are not just trying to cooperate with the police and try to get them to behave better in the way that a lot of our reform conversation plays out but is instead thinking about ways that they can be productive um kind of a dis you know uncooperation a lack of cooperation how that could um, lead to interesting types of reforms but there's so much more i should be listing here um <laughs> so much more and i could keep you here all day with that so but i'm gonna uh much to my chagrin i think i'm gonna stop there um i want to well I, i'll mention a couple other things so if you're interested in like federal police reforms. I think, so the work of Sunita Patel at UCLA, um, says a fascinating article in the Wake Forest Law Review about um, federal um, kind of intervention, uh, what we call section 14141 uh, consent decrees that have happened in several cities uh, throughout the nation. They're less common and uh, the Trump administration doesn't believe in them but um, there are ways in which the Department of Justice can gain uh, control over police departments that have violate, have a pattern or practice of violating constitutional rights. So Sunita's work, uh, Stephen Russian's work on that is great. Um, Rachel Harmon has some great work. And then finally, I do want to mention also Seth Stoughton, who can be known on Twitter, I think it's called it's Police Law Prof. Um, Seth has some great work. Seth is an, a former police officer and has some really fascinating work that deals with the really granular aspects of policing and, and plays them out in law. So one of my favorite articles by Seth is called Moonlighting and it's about the way police officers work off duty um, and uh, and kind of do basically engage in a second shift. And we've seen uh, in a lot of these incidents that police being overworked. So I'm thinking about Amber Geiger um, and the death um, of both of John in Dallas, um, which uh, is to just tragic. Um, I mean, all of these deaths are tragic, but it just shocks me how every flare up, we forget the names that came before. And so I'm thinking about both of John and it's like, you know, he was sitting in his house and Amber Geiger is tired and has been working all these extra shifts and thinks that he's in her apartment and kills him uh, while he's eating a bowl of ice cream. And uh, part of the story there might be that her judgment was impaired because she's been working so much. Um, and so there's a way in which a lot of these um, readings would give you a way more complicated picture of what's needed to to truly transform policing. Maybe that means abolishing it. Maybe it means reforming it. Maybe there's a way to transform and neither just simply reform or abolish. But we need more people with that type of um, literacy uh, about policing, I think, in order to create the change we ultimately need. Okay. Thank you for sharing so many resources. I really appreciate it. And I'll make sure I attach the links to them uh, for our audience. Um, and thank you so much again for taking the time to talk with me. Uh, this has been absolutely wonderful. Great. It's been, it's been a pleasure and, uh, feel free to reach out anytime. Will do. Okay. Have a wonderful rest of your day.
All right, you too.